everybody. Welcome to the Poetry Space. So far, Mark Danowski is here and he has accepted his speaker invite, even feeding out Timothy Green, who we have given up on trying to allow to co-host given the issue with Twitter with co-hosting where he's listed as speaker, but we all know he's really the co-host. Um, I'm excited today to look at episode 25 of the Poetry Space. We're, we're going to be talking about enjambment and line breaks, which I think are super important things that Sometimes we don't take a moment to really pause and break down and look at line by line as my first uh, unsuccessful pun of the space has started. So, hey, Tim, how are you doing today? I'm good, Katie. Can you hear me all right on the uh, speakerphone? I forgot my headphones this week. I can hear you all right. Actually, it sounds a little better than normal, oddly enough, I think. <laughs> well, that's that's good to hear because I'm going to have to hold the phone <laughs> from now on, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but you, already, you actually you missed a joke that you even said which was that uh, to, to pause, <laughs> take a moment to think about it. Um, you, you pause too and then a line break. So um, <laughs> there you well, go. You're already, you're already you're open well to like that. I, <laughs> I was opening my poetry craft handbooks and looking uh, at the like line break section. So they should just come out and stop without even me expecting them at this point because <laughs> I've looked at this too long. So I'm excited to definitely get into this. And I think you've picked a really great opening poem too for today. Yeah, I picked a, a sonnet by Kim Adonizio. And it's because uh, it's my favorite kind of sonnet. And I kind of wish all sonnets did this or something similar. But uh, it's a sonnet where every single line isn't jammed up until the last. There's only one end stop line in the whole sonnet. And uh, it's first poem for you by Kim Adonizio. I like to touch your tattoos in complete darkness. When I can't see them, I'm sure of where they are. Know by heart the neat lines of lightning pulsing just above your nipple. Can find as if by instinct the blue swirls of water on your shoulder where a serpent twists facing a dragon. When I pull you to me, taking you until we're spent and quiet on the sheets, I love to kiss the pictures in your skin. The last until you seared to ashes, whatever persists or turns to pain between us. They will still be there. Such permanence is terrifying. So I touch them in the dark, but touch them trying. And so that, uh, if you, you, it's almost you can't even hear the rhymes. It's like all the end rhymes for the sonnet, which is a, it's a uh, traditional Shakespearean sonnet, I think, um, is uh, everything is in jam so much that it feels like internal rhymes as you read it. And so uh, I, I love the feel of that, the tension between, the expectation of the rhyme and then how buried it is within the, the syntax of the sentence. Yeah, that's a really good point. And we should, we should probably just say from the beginning too, I think looking at who's in this room right now, I think everybody could probably define enjambment. And yet I'm going to make you listen to my definition of enjambment, which is just the continuation of a line beyond, you know, not ending with an end stop with a sentence ending with it just continuing on beyond the line and looking at it like that is enjambment. And then of course, the line breaks more generally um, being a, enjambment being a subset of line breaks, I think is uh, important to take a second to talk about. But it's interesting too, I was looking at kind of the history of line breaks and how it's kind of almost a construct of, you know, post printing press looking at the time where we began looking at poems more in terms of reading them to ourselves than the oral tradition, which Tim was something that you largely just gave a lecture on a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in the oral tradition, you want to have end stop rhyme because that's how you keep pace. The, the whole point of poetry before we had text was as a mnemonic device. And so you wanted to have, um, the whole reason for having rhymes at the end of a certain number of iambic feet or a certain number of, um, um, stresses or a certain number of consonant sounds was to keep the pace of the music. So you could keep the storytelling and keep track of that, like chunking, you know, that if you uh, are trying to remember a long string of numbers, there's that competition to see who can memorize pi for the longest. What you do is chunk, you chunk your numbers into like units of four or 10 or seven or however many can, you can make up. And then you can memorize longer lists that way. And that was the whole point of poetry was to have these lines chunked so the meaning was chunked so we could have it digitized and remember it when we got, you know, through the, the long course of time without any way to write it down. 
And so, of course, there's no point to have line breaks <laughs> while that's the whole point, because line breaks, if you're if you're if the point is to memorize things, then line breaks uh, or, or enjambment, I should say, is uh, is not something that is helpful at all. It's actually a detriment to memorization, but it's a great uh, addition to the feel of a performance of a poem, I think. Yeah, that's definitely true. And of course, in enjambment with looking at the written word. It stands out so much more and indicates the pause, whereas in the oral tradition, it's hard to indicate that pause. And it would just kind of seem like, well, what's the point? Why are you pausing here, bro? Like, you know, looking at the actual text on the page, I think. Um, so it became a construct in part two of what we talked about in a previous episode of the Poetry Space, which is just plating poems, because also it obviously where you break the line really influences how a poem looks. It's one of the absolute biggest factors, of course. Um, but also breaking up stanzas, of course, right up there too. I want to also read this quote from Mary Oliver just about the subject in general from a poetry handbook, which I think is pound for pound, probably the best poetry craft book because it's really short and the information contained in it is so important. I think anybody could read this book and be able to write a good poem, to be honest. That's at least been my strategy in life. So she said just on the subject, this subject Turning the line is one that every poet deals with throughout his or her working life, and gladly too, for every turning is a meaningful decision, the effect of which is sure to be felt by the reader. And you can take, I think, a single poem and change where the line breaks are, and it completely can change the meaning of the poem, uh, the rhythm of the poem being so affected also where the line is broken, because whereas it used to be felt, you know, particularly and still is in, in formal verse more by, you know, where the stresses and the unstresses are and the meter. It is more you're kind of trying to create a meter even in free verse through using line breaks. Yeah, I mean, the you have to remember it goes back to the way that our brains work, of course, because we're pattern recognition machines. That's how our brain, our little little meat computers work. And so we, we get a little reward every time you recognize a pattern. And so you, you set up these patterns, you set up this model that you can feel and experience and then ex an expectation. And then every time there's the rhyme comes through or the meter comes through or the, the line break is something that you understand, then you get this little pleasing reward, this little tiny hit of dopamine. And every time it's slightly off, you get to upgrade your model and get a new reward. And so it's part of this sort of operant conditioning almost that we come to, to speak and to learn to love everything that we love, you know, setting up the expectation of where a line should end and then continuing it past that in a way that's surprising. And that turnover into surprise is what makes us uh, really take pleasure in the language. And so the line breaks are such an important part of poetry because that's such a, such a big part of the pleasure is to set up that expectation and then subvert it and, and find that balance between the two, you know, not being so expected that it's not surprising, but then not being so surprising that nothing is expected. You have to find the balance to hit the right pleasure spot for the brain. Yeah, that's a really good point and something I'm looking forward to as we read more poems during this space to examine because it's not just like, how much can you shock people? Because then it's, it's not a poem. It's like watching, you know, a car crash or something. It's like too jarring and too much. But if it's, you know, well handled and well executed, there's a balance in there that is, you know, complemented usually by the theme of the poem as well. I think, Mark Janowski, your hand is down, but it was just up, and I was just about to call on you. So if you actually would like to speak now, you're very much welcome to, and we'd love to hear from you. Sure. Um, this just gets me thinking, what do we think, and do we agree that prose poems uh, should ideally have distinct line breaks? Uh, a prose poem is doesn't, I think. <laughs> I mean, that's the definition of prose, that there's no line breaks. So um, I would say no. I, to me, I think, you know, this is, goes back to the definition of uh, poetry versus prose and what it actually is. And prose is something that lives in the mind's eye, in, in the uh, creation of thoughts and ideas and images in that sort of visual uh, way where you enter the story and that's what prose is trying to do so it's trying to have all these musical components and sound great at the same time as it makes you lose yourself and lose your sense of your body and poetry is embodied language and so you know the, so the line breaks add to that sense of um, you know having a body and being in your breath having to have regulation and so you're sort of always remembering that you're becoming the speaker as you read a poem and you're trying to forget that you're a speaker as you read prose. I think that's the difference between the two. And so uh, the fact that prose, you know, if prose started having line breaks, it makes you suddenly aware of the fact that 
that you're participating in it. Whereas usually in prose, what you want to do is forget that you're participating. You want to lose yourself. That suspension of disbelief is what you're seeking. And so I think it's a completely opposite aim and it's sort of a continuum between the two. One of the things we're going to talk about later, I think, is uh, some of the poets that use um, really weak line breaks to uh, de-emphasize the voice in that way. So they lose themselves in the poem more than they would if they had, uh, you know, really strong line breaks or really a rhyme or meter or things like that. Uh, And so that's another direction we can take this discussion maybe a little later because I have some examples of that to share. Yeah, and I just wanted to add that, um, so the word verse is from the Latin and it includes the meaning to turn, which I think is very interesting with what we're talking about too today in terms of it, <laughs> literally talking about the the movement that you have between the lines, you know, being the difference is ending in part between prose and verse. Well, not only that, but I love that uh, enjambment, uh, the jam in enjambment is a door jam. And it means to go over, like go through a door. And uh so that's really, you know, we're, we're sort of moving from one room to another when we go from one line to another. And, ah, um, I didn't think about that. That's amazing. I love that. I, I was thinking of like jam with like a peanut butter and jam type sandwich, but that's a lot better. <laughs> that's a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. It's the French, you know, that's, it's, it's a door jam. And, uh, and, and the thing is, you know, carrying something over, that's another, you know, the metaphor, the word metaphor uh, comes from the root to carry over. And so we're carrying over that metaphor of the poem through the door from one room into another, every time we turn over a line. Um, and it's really that the words have such deep meanings that we don't think of so often. And I think that's one of the great cases of it. Yeah, that's happening. I, I really should have thought of that. The number of times I've written the word enjambment, I just keep thinking I'm spelling it wrong. That's kind of where I am with things. But, <laughs> but I was going to say, I think that maybe the first or the second poem, rather, that we look at should be Dick Westheimer shared a monologue from Hamlet, which, first of all, I just want to hear Dick Westheimer read because he has a great voice and I think will be amazing. And then will be a cool study uh, in enjambment. I'm going to try to do a better job pinning these tweets to the top of the space so that you guys can read along because it being about line breaks and enjambment, of course, where the line breaks are is even more important. So I'm going to recommend that you guys, you know, click along with the links and I'm going to recommend to myself that I'm fast enough to do it. So anyway, how are you doing today, Dick Westheimer, when you'd like to share some Hamlet with us? I have to turn on my microphone first. Um, yeah, I'm, um, interested but not a scholar in Shakespeare nor a a really capable reader of it you know I know that good readers of it know how to scan the lines and find the rhythm um, better but um, I'm interested in how often Shakespeare on the page is a poet as opposed to a playwright Um, and uh, in this case and I, I won't I won't read the whole thing because despite your protestations that I'm a good reader, I'm not a good reader of Shakespeare. So I'll I'll start and I'll I'll read a little bit and then sort of annotate what I was thinking about. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing them to die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. So I'll stop right there. And for those (coughs) not seeing it, the first like, I think little master stroke is after the second line where he says, "'Tis nobler in the mind to suffer." And you think an or might be coming or you're not sure there might be a litany. And sure enough, he starts a litany, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And then comes the or, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing them to die, to sleep. And then this one, (coughs) pardon me, to die, to sleep, end of the line, no more. So I just love how he keeps setting up line after line, ambiguity there. It's probably uh, in, a, in the mouths of a good uh, Shakespeare reader or actor comes through in the way they pace their, their talking and add 
pardon me, I'm going to have to mute here, and adds to the appreciation the audience has of the meaning, even with the archaic language. Take it from here. I need to cough. I'm sorry, Dick West, Simon, that you have a cough, but you're so kindly still joining us and still reading us Shakespeare. Now I feel bad for putting you on this slide. Oh, that, that's okay. <laughs> that I, I have, I don't have a cough. I have this asthma that comes on every now and then. So, which manifests as a cough. But to me, this is a master class in enjambment from 500 years ago. Um, it's full of surprise. It's full of turns. It sets up expectations. And in the mouth of a good reader of this work on stage, it transcends the archaicness of the language for somebody who's listening to a play. I can go to a Shakespeare play and in a, a very good actor, I will be understanding the meaning because they are hitting the beats, the pauses in ways that set up this ex expectation of surprise and leave me as an audience member filling in the blanks, thinking what's going to happen next, and then what happens might be different or the same. And so I, I think it is, um, for me, a wonderful um, example of enjambment. Yeah, that really is. It's, it's so interesting because I hadn't personally thought about Shakespeare at all while thinking about Suffer the Space. So thanks for that. And for, I think you hit on it so well when you said, you know, setting up of expectations. So it's the, you know, the line sets up an expectation and then we, we assume we're going somewhere. And oftentimes we don't want to go to that place. If we never go to the place we're expecting, it can, I think, feel almost a little bit like, hey, I never know what's going on in this poem, which can be in effect used very well in other ways, but maybe it's not always what you want. So again, it's in finding that balance. Uh, uh, yeah, another great word too there was uh, ambiguity, you know, because the end of the line leaves us with an ambiguous place. We're kind of like Schrodinger's cat waiting for to yeah, see whether we're alive or dead. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, and then you turn the line and figure it out, you know, so uh, that, that, that ambiguity is resolved. And so it, it sort of also sets up that ambiguity and then the resolution of the ambiguity. It's just that's the way Shakespeare's using it. A lot of lines. Yeah, there. Uh, let me just add one more before I sign off here. He says to die, to sleep. And then, of course, there's that no more as opposed to my expectation when I read it that he's saying that dying is like a sleep, but not to sleep no more. And by sleep, to say we end, right? That could be the, the end of the verse, end period. But instead he says no more. And by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. So this really puts the um like as a as a listener you're constantly recreating the world and then having it sort of like knocked out from underneath you which it's pretty dramatic no pun intended <laughs> yeah it is pretty dramatic especially if we were holding up you know a skull during, <laughs> during this uh, oh, I, oh not, katie but... the skull is in a holy other other Make scene that. at the at the great at the graveyard <laughs> That's the graveyard. Well, you can always hold up a skull, though. You don't need an excuse, right? <laughs> no, I think your point was very well taken. And also, um, so it says to die, to sleep, I think, in two different parts, you know, of that monologue. And the first time, it's to die, M dash, to sleep, comma, to end the line. And then the other time, it's to die, comma, to sleep, semicolon. And those are such different things to read, and they are imbued with such different meaning, which I think is, is so beautiful and speaks to the importance of punctuation as well, particularly at the end of a line, because it's telling us how long to pause and what kind of a, a pause, the connotations of that pause that we want to upheld in that brief moment before we skip to the beginning of the next line. Yeah, that, what you were talking about, the, the meaning and then the meaning being subverted, uh, this is something that Mark Danowski brought up the word, which is one of those words that, that I know occasionally, and then usually I have to keep looking up, and I can't remember it. And <laughs> that word is a paraprosdokian, which is that use of comedy where the uh, you know the most famous line is the "Take my wife, please." You know that Henry Youngman. Uh, but there's so much of that one-liner comedy is based on this you know setup 
and then the punchline that surprises what you expect from the punchline. And so often when we talk about an especially good line break, uh, that's what we're talking about is that that's that subversion of what you expected. And there's that. And it goes back to that that ha and the aha that Kay Ryan was talking about in that essay that I talked about when we were talking about humor in poetry is that it's that that reaction that humans have, that spontaneous physical reaction to surprise. And sometimes it's laughter, sometimes it's a gasp. But either way, it's that it's the sudden rewriting of the model of the world and your expectation that you had. And there's a joy that we take in that. And uh, it's interesting to compare those to, to poetry and the line breaks. I mean, there's so many um, great ones. I, I, we wrote, I took some from the Wikipedia, but there's, um, you know, Winston Churchill, there but for the grace of God goes God. You know, and then uh, Homer Simpson was, if I could just say a few words, I'd be a better public speaker. <laughs> and uh, um, Bertrand Russell, war does not determine who is right, only who is left. And those are all, if those were line breaks, those are great places for line breaks where they set up that ambiguity and that sense of like, I think I know it's coming, but I'm not sure. And then completely surprising you by uh, the twist that it takes. And, and you can think about the way poems have to have movement. And a great line like that has a movement in it and moves from one place to another, from the place that you think you're going into some new sort of reality where the whole world is twisted around in just a little phrase. And, and it goes back to haiku, too, because that's a cut in haiku. The kariji is turning the whole world around, too. And so, so much of what we do in poetry is enjambment or is haiku or is, you know, it's all the same kind of thing, which is learning and expanding our understanding of the world through um, subverting our expectations of the world. Yeah, it's very true. And then, you know, with haiku in particular, with the much shorter lines, you're reaching that point very quickly. And that's part of what makes it so powerful with haiku. And it also is part of why haiku works so well in terms of you, I, at least I want a moment to, to think about it and digest when I've read a really good one um, because the cut can be such a, such a big cut, such a big leap between expectations that I just really want to want to get in there. Okay, let's see. So Carla Schwartz, who is going to, who I just was looking at the comments and has first, I think, something to tell us about the true meaning of enjambment. Well, <laughs> How are you well, doing no, today, Carla? No, enjambment, it's the, uh, the word jambe in French, J-A-M-B, means leg. So, so, um, and so, and I think leg is an interesting, you know, is an in some ways to me more interesting than a door jam, uh, you know, in terms of thinking about what enjambment white might mean in terms of the text of a poem and, and that, you know, you're kind of taking a step from here and then you're going there, but that's my thought about it. So, and then you can always remember how to spell it because JMB is always spelled with a B. So Jean means leg in French. Everybody should know that. And then, um, also, I had a sort of a comment and question before I get to read a poem, which is that um, a few things. One was, you know, you have poems that have uh, syllabics, that have rhyme schemes, maybe even concrete poems. And some of these structures that a poet would impose on their work would also potentially um, lend themselves to the enjambment that wouldn't necessarily otherwise be there if it were written a different way. So I'm just saying not that enjambment isn't, you know, something that's intentional, but that it could also be, you know, if somebody is working with rhyme, especially, you know, even an older poem that you might see, you could see that it might be more likely to be enjammed simply because of that rhyme scheme that's there, line length, uh, meter even, and, and syllabics that might uh, constrain a line in a poem. Um, yeah, and what? Yeah, go on. Oh, I just wanted to say that I also love the. Uh, first of all, I should have remembered my high school French and remembered Jean being <laughs> leg, but also I love how that ties into the metrical foot too. We've got like a whole whole leg going on there with the foot as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That is great. That is great. And I guess another question I would have because I guess people were bringing up punctuation at the end. You know, whether if you is it considered an enjambment if you had a semicolon or a comma or something at the end? I would, I always thought that, you know, enjambment would be really um, continuity without uh, punctuation. Um, I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's the definition of enjambment is uh, not having any punctuation at all. And right. so, you know, the, yeah. and the obvious, the opposite would be uh, having a stop at the end of some kind of punctuation. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And then, um, so uh, Katie, I had, you know, gave her an example of a poem. She asked me to read it. And um, it was in, um, it's actually in Poetry Daily this week. And it's called um, Little Song in the Locrian by Timmy Straw. I have two things, sang the bird from the pin oak. Two things have I the answer back. The world in its message today, the world is in its message today. The world is in its keys. The sun in its flashes the sun in it flashes like a flag in, in pavilion, like a frog's throat flashing in the sun. And there are things that must be said, I know. Awful and simple as children yelling out, our mother is dead. A fact will baptize a brain for a while, while for a while, but what makes that, the baptism stay? I have two things, sings the bird in the pin oak. Two things have I, the bird in the eaves. A tuning met and gone, like the look the two hostages gave when they passed at the neutral middle of the bridge. Um, and so this is a poem that was in the Yale Review in the spring of 2023. And um, I just found it really interesting. It, it has this repetition in the first part that gets repeated later. There's punctuation, and the next time it gets repeated, there's no punctuation, um, and you know it gives you a different feel. And then in the end, everything is enjambed. Um, the last, if you wrote it as a sentence, the last four lines would read: "A tuning met and gone, like the look the two hostages gave when they passed at the neutral point, at the neutral middle of the bridge." And that's four lines. Yeah, that's a really wonderful pick. And I did pin it at the top. I managed to do it. I'm, I'm saying that in part just so I can pat myself on the back for some reason. So you guys can look at the enjambment Carla Schwartz is talking about at the end. And that enjambment is just so powerful. A tuning met and gone like the look the two hostages gave. You know, it's just not where you're expecting it goes. It goes to such a powerful, a powerful place. So that's a really excellent example. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. You're welcome. Thank you. Does anybody have anything that they want to say about that poem, looking at it now, or your thoughts uh, as we progress in the space about enjambment or line break? Well, I did. I think uh, Mark had his hand up when we were talking about um, that, that weird word. Um, what is it? Paraprosdokian? Surely you can at least say it better today. than you or I can. So can, yeah, I have to look at the word every time to say it. It's not, it will not lodge in my head. But we'll just um, have him chant the word over and over again so we can learn during this space. Uh -oh, no, I'm, <laughs> please say I'm it, Mark, sorry. Please. I actually have no idea how to say that word. <laughs> We're all hopeless here. <laughs> It is interesting, though, and uh, it's a, another opportunity just to, um, I guess, ask people to reflect on the interesting similarities between poetry and stand-up and how the delivery uh, is similar and different. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about the length of the pause, what Katie was saying about her drama teacher, you know, that the timing is everything in comedy, you know, if you... Um, it, it, if that, that take my wife, please <laughs> has to be, um, if it's, if you draw it out too long, it's sort of, you know, it's too self-aware of itself to be funny, but if you say it too fast, it's too fast to notice. So there is this sort of perfect amount of time too with a line break. So there's a timing that goes in. I think that's what too uh, Dick was talking about in uh, a great actor reading, reading the text the right way for Shakespeare is to know exactly how long to pause to hit the right um, emotional tones based on how much expectation, how much delay, you know, how much we're withholding and how much we're not that cat in the box. Um, and so it, it's where timing comes out in poetry and where the reader, interestingly, it's the poetry is the one medium where 
the uh, reader is actually the canvas. And so, you know, in an open mic reading, uh, we can do our comedy poems really easily, but uh, because we can do the timing, but at a uh, reading a book yourself, you're the one who's exposed to set up that timing and it's sort of on you to get it right, which makes it much more difficult to transfer comedy through text, I think too. Uh, But it is fascinating the way that that works, those two in parallel. Yeah, definitely. I think too, with thinking about uh, different uses of punctuation at the end of lines, there's definitely a reason why certain poets tend to use different types of punctuation more because there is such a different feeling that comes from that choice. Um, probably anybody who's listened to the poetry space before knows that I'm obsessed with in dashes. And part of that is because the way I see that kind of pause that I'm trying to indicate, at least it's kind of like, you know, like you're pouring water into like a funnel and that funnel leads to the next line. Like you want that kind of, of release into it. That's, you know, we are sliding into the next line, that kind of feel, at least for me when I write it. Whereas if I use like a colon, I want a firm, real break, like, hey, like, it's like I'm pointing at you with two fingers, you are going to stop here for a second and think about what I'm about to say. It's kind of how, how I'm feeling about it. But go ahead, Mark, what do you have to say? It just got me thinking about um, when Natasha Trethway did her tour uh, while she was Poet Laureate. Um, she talked a little about W.S. Merwin and how something she loved about Merwin was that reading his poems, uh, there isn't actual punctuation, uh, but you can intuit it. That's a great point and a very relevant one for me because Merwin is on my nightstand right now. So thank you for that very relevant detail to me. I think too, we should go ahead and hear from somebody else that kindly tweeted a poem to look at and talk about enjambment or line breaks with, and that is none other than the Joe Barca, who we have not heard from in a while, and I've missed hearing his Bostonian voice. So how are you doing today, Joe? Oh, it's great to be here. Um, So some of you who know me, probably once a year, I fall in love with a certain poet and a certain collection, um, from Mai Dervang to Alex Sears, and this year it seems to be Gabriel Bates, who wrote a collection called Judas Goat. So if you get a chance check out the book. It's pretty amazing. But So I'm going to read the title poem, and then I would say enjambment isn't the critical element in the poem, but it's used quite uh, prudently in a couple of segments, which I'll point out. But if you can read it along or look at it while I'm reading it, great. If not, I'll point it out afterwards. I'll try to highlight it when I read it. Judas Goat. We of our ends are perhaps all this oblivious. One goat trained to live with the sheep neck bell jingling in and out of the slaughterhouse. To the goat, the shackling pen is no more than another human room. After it's fed a feast of roughage, sprigs of sage, timothy, cedar chips, carrot beards, it sleeps. What sheep? Wild goat's eyes, when we catch them, are always open. But this goat dreams. Its lips twitch as it lies, curled chin, to thurl behind the pen. Each morning, that silver bell is affixed to its neck. It leads the flock. Whiter than all the loose-legged lambs, it approaches under a bright summer sun, the gate, grass on either side, green. I am too dying of what? I don't know. Anyway, I'm going to just point out three sections that I thought the use of enjambment was uh, quite clever. She says, to the goat, the shackling pen is no more than another human. End line. And then she says, room. And then towards the end, she says, whiter than all loose-legged lambs, it approaches under a bright summer sun. The gate. It doesn't say it approaches the gate under a bright summer sun. Then at the very end, she says, I am too dying of what? End, la- end stop. I don't know rather than, I am too dying of what I don't know. So as we know, the English language or any language is so subtle and nuanced, you know, end lines and then enjambment just enrich it. And if you pay close attention when you read it, there's there's so much there and so much to appreciate. And that's very well said, Joe. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think particularly yeah. at the end, the enjambment is really stunning. 
Yeah, great use of enjambment in that. And you see the, the subversion, the creation of sort of artificial ambiguity, uh, you know, that where the I'm dying, I'm, I am too dying of what I don't know, that of what, you know, it, it would, there wouldn't be any ambiguity without the break there. And so it's creating ambiguity where there was none. And the same with, the uh, you know, under the sun, the gate. Another really interesting thing that we haven't talked about yet is the way that the, the length of the line, uh, we've been looking at a lot of, uh, you know, iambic poems and things like that, but the, uh, the length of the line also indicates how fast you're going to read it. And so there's something interesting going on here that you don't see very often. And I always wonder, um, you know, why we don't play with this more as poets actually. But if you, if you're looking at the, the poem, the lines are start longer and then they go shorter and what a short line really does for a lot of reasons for, for, you know, not only because as your eye pans back, but also because of the white space, you start to slow down when you get to closer to, to shorter lines uh, because it makes the words sort of hover in space there. Um, and so the poem itself slows down by decreasing the line length toward the end. And, uh, and that's the thing too, that, you know, it, it sort of teaches you because poems are almost like the sheet music for the oral music that's coming out of your breath. And it teaches you to slow down at that spot. So it's kind of a way to make, uh, to annotate the way you should read that poem, to slow down and really ponder that last couple lines that have the most profound meaning. That's a really good point. And also too, I'm reminded having um, read William Carlos Williams, The Red Wheelbarrow, just because it comes up a lot when people are talking about enjambment again today, the end of Judas of the Judas Goat poem that Joe Barker just shared with us, that's I'm too dying of what? I don't know. The shape of those two lines is very similar to the actual, um, I believe it's couplets in William Carlos Williams' Red Wheelbarrow poem. And I think that the effect of that too, from going from a longer, from an enjammed longer line to a shorter one, is that it makes you really want to read that last part. It's like you're picking up something you dropped on the floor or something. It's kind of, kind of the effect of it. And I also wanted to read again from a poetry handbook by Mary Oliver because as Tim can attest, I had my highlighter out this morning, guys. It was exciting. Um, she says, when, on the other hand, the poet enjams the line, turns the line so that a logical phrase is interrupted, it speeds the line for two reasons. Curiosity about the missing part of the phrase impels the reader to hurry on, and the reader will hurry twice as fast over the obstacle of a pause because it is there. We leap with more energy over a ditch than over no ditch, which I love that she ends it with a metaphor because she's Mary Oliver. So she writes like a better metaphor in her prose than writing my own poetry. <laughs> Go ahead, Joe. What did you want to add to that? So I was just going to say a while back, I was talking to a poetry friend who said that she had a mentor and the mentor said to her, you're a very good poet. But if you want to take it to the next level, you have to study and understand line breaks and enjambment. So I just think it's it's a critical tool to, you know, sort of up our game as writers. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, so much of what I'm trying to do with poetry is just get that balance right when I write where I want to be surprising with line breaks, but also not make it feel uh, artificial or forced in the surprise. You know, we want to make sure that we're surprising enough. Uh, to keep people interested and want to read, but also not so surprising that they jump off the boat because they don't know where the hell we're going. So, all right, let's see. George, what did you have to add on this? Yeah, I wanted to say these are these are all uh, considerations that I think, you know how many poem, many poets like to, they'll, they'll write a poem and then they'll shape the poem into, into something. Like, for example, if the poem, you know, has to do with shooting or has to do with guns, sometimes I think it's clever to, to make the lines actually look like a gun, <laughs> old old school. Um, but uh, I think these are these are things to take in, take into account if you want to if you want to shape your poem. It's it's going to be if you still want to use enjambment, it it, it really complicates it. Um, and uh, just something to think think in mind if you choose to uh, to go that route in, in uh, the way you're writing. Well, not only that, but I, uh, how I usually write is I write out the sound. It comes out in the sound of the, the voice moving through the poem. And then I try to figure out the shape of the poem later, not shaped like a certain object as in a concrete poem, but just the shape of the poem that fits the right, the, the pacing and the feel of the voice in my head. And so, you know, and so a lot of the tinkering, if I do any tinkering with poems, is how long to make the lines and where to make those breaks and, and how 
you know, comparing the pleading of a poem, like we talked about in a previous episode, how it looks on the page with how it feels in the ear as you're pausing over certain breaks and over lines and where it's emphasizing what and where you can sort of build up um, that kind of meaning and then subversion of meaning. And, and that's all what I'm playing with for the most part in the poem. The poem sort of comes out um, for me almost all the time as just a string of sound that wants to sound a certain way but then getting the most out of that and again, getting that into the, the reader's breath is the thing that takes the most time for me and sort of shaping the poem. And that's what I would play with as far as like revision goes. So, um, so that's an interesting thing too, to think about how you shape a poem after the fact and, and how much line breaks and jam and come into play there. That, that's really interesting to hear that you do that. Cause I'm realizing too, my own process is I kind of create the plate for myself like within the first couple of lines based on how I feel the poem is, is heading, if it's a fast poem or a slower poem. And then uh, as I write, the line breaks kind of fall into place. Usually I need to edit some, but the best poems that I write, you know, really aren't ones I feel I need to edit very much um, because the, the plating is just right from the beginning and then the, the breaks just fall in as they should be. Yeah, I think that's the more common way to write, but I've just always, for some reason, written this way. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, yeah, another thing I wanted to think of this to change the subject because we have 15 minutes left is the fact that we've talked about sort of the positive or the the strong breaks, you know, to, and to talk about, introduce those words, I guess. You know, a strong break would be something that, that creates some kind of tension and surprise that leaves a sort of... Um, a segment of the sentence, maybe dangling, so you don't know what to expect. And their whole, you know, chunk units. There's often the the advice never to end lines on articles, and we'd call that a weak ending if you end on like of or the or an and things like that that don't have that sense of completeness. Because you know, and what we'd call a strong line break, there's that sense of completeness, and then we add on to it and twist around that completeness in a way that's pleasing. But there's another use, which is to do the opposite when you'd want to de-emphasize that kind of uh, sense of completeness. And one of the poets that does it very often is Kay Ryan. And um, I had a poem here. Which one? Yeah, so I pulled up um, Home to Roost. You got that one, Katie? <laughs> you want to pin it to the top or tweet it or whatever? I will. Yeah, it's going to take me a second. <laughs> so I think you should continue to talk. <laughs> yeah, well, of course. Yeah, so uh, Home to Roost is um, what, what ends up, Kay Ryan ends up doing. She loves rhyme and she loves short poems. And the problem with rhyming in short poems is it ends up feeling very sing-songy in nursery rhyme because the rhymes are so close, you never sort of get lost. They don't have a chance to evolve and sort of be spontaneous because it's, it's a short poem. And so every rhyme feels really strong. And, but, but that's what Kay Ryan likes to write. She likes to play with language in this way. So what she does is she buries the rhymes in. So she has, if you look at Home to Roost, I think it was published in Poetry, yeah, Poetry Magazine, um, and this was after, uh, it's actually a poet respond type poem, I think. I think it was written after 9-11, um, if I remember right. But Home to Roost, uh, if you look at it, it ends in, in articles. It ends in, and these are the endings, chickens and the, is the, in. And so what that does is it pulls the music out of the poem. It makes it sort of feel artificially clunky to contrast with how musical her rhymes actually are. And it buries the rhymes and makes them feel internal, even though they're end stopped which is a really interesting tension. And she does this all the time. Other poets do, um, um, Marcella Schulich, I was talking to her on a Rattlecast once, and she writes sonnets and then hides the fact that they're sonnets. <laughs> and, uh, and they're sort of perfect Shakespearean sonnets. Then she breaks it up in ways that don't look like a sonnet. Um, another one that I should have mentioned um, is a, a curgenated sonnet, which is a fascinating, another way to do sonnets. Maybe we should... Uh, I could tweet that. Well, maybe we'll end before we do the, the end of the show. I'll show you this one, Katie, and you can pin it. I'll tweet it to you right now. But um, a curgenate sonnet is, a, is something that's broken artificially <laughs> to make an acrostic. And so it really changes the way that buries the, the sounds and the music in a way that, that makes the music feel better. So it doesn't feel too – you don't focus too much on the music. And that's what Kay Ryan often does. So I'll read Home to Roost first. Uh, this is uh, Kay Ryan, Home to Roost. The chickens are circling and blotting out the day. The sun is bright and the chickens are in the way. Yes, the sky is dark with chickens, dense with them. They turn and they turn again. These are the chickens you let loose, one at a time in small, various breeds. Now they have come home to roost, all the same kind, at the same speed. 
And so you can hear the rhymes there very strongly, but the rhymes like um, day and way, day is the first word of the fourth line. And then way is the second word of the seventh line. And, uh, and so they're sort of hidden in there. So, so they don't stand out starkly and you, and they only sort of emerge in the reading and it lets them be a little more, uh, a little more obscure. So it's a fascinating way to do it. Yeah. And that, that really is such a challenge to have, you know, full rhyme in, in a really short poem is something that I try to challenge myself to do sometimes. It's really hard to pull it off with that level of mastery, but that's part of why she's Kay Ryan, I suppose. And part of why I pinned it not once, but twice to the top of the space, because I was, like, I guess, feeling so strongly about it that I had to go ahead and do that, right? Yeah, good job. <laughs> um, and then let's see, the other one, um, I'll, I'll just read this now. This is one of my favorite, I think this is one of the best poems um, ever written it's a, i think it's the best political poem ever written for one i'll, I'll tweet it to you uh, i got the rattle kind of open on my computer you can I'll, just I'll tell me tell me the name of the poem and i'll pull it up and people and then we well it's the, the thing is it's hard to find the, the poem is beans uh, it's an it's a fascinating poem too uh, I, I tweeted you the image link for some reason over on twitter but um but the poem is uh, by dp cristallo who is an anonymous poet. No one even knows who this is. It's just someone who posts poems on message boards back in like the late nineties. And um, this is actually a sonnet. Um, and it's about, um, it's an acrostic sonnet. So it spells out Salvador Allende uh, down the, the left hand of the page. Um, and, but you don't know that, you know, it, it, reading it, you can't really, it doesn't really stand out, but it's a sonnet. So here I'll read this. This is beans by DP Cristolo. September came like winter's ailing child, but left us viewing Valparaiso's pride. Your face was always saddest when you smiled. You smiled as every doctored moment lied. You lie with orphans' parents long reviled. As close as coppers, yellow beans still lie by Pocho's banks. It leads them to the sea. Entwined on rocks and saplings, each new vine recalls that dawn in 1973 when every choking bastard weed grew wild. And so that's about the assassination of Allende and the political motivations behind that. Um, but there's so much going on in the way that in the same way Kay Ryan does burying the rhymes. If you look at that curgenated sonnet, it does the same thing, undercutting the music of itself and creating a, a, so much energy from that friction. And it's a great example to point out. Yeah, and I have to say, too, I really do like ending with articles and words you're not supposed to end with in poems. Maybe it's just because I'm anti-authority in general, and so I'm late for any mediocre excuse to rebel, basically, in my life. But I really like it. It allows for movement, and it's unexpected and fresh. Like, as long as it, you're thinking about it, and it's not just like, oh, well, I just i am going to leave the, an and out here or an at or, or a weak word, like you're saying. I think it, it propels the poem forward in, in a way that also makes it feel more effortless and less like, hello, this is my MFA poem. Well, it also it de-emphasizes the line and lets you forget that you're reading poetry a little more. There's another poet. There are a lot of poets who do this, too, because the funny thing about being an editor is I see people's actual word documents. And a lot of times you can see their revisions and uh, past, you know, the way that's been going. They, they leave their um, their their uh, whatever they call it, that that up checking thing on sometimes. And you, or you can see how they do the line breaks. And there's some poets um who don't actually have line breaks. They just slide the margins and then make stanza breaks. And uh, so that it's completely sort of random. They just want a certain line length and they don't want the line emphasized. And again, it goes back to that, 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 that continuum between prose and poetry where prose lives in the mind's eye and poetry is in the body. And sometimes you want a poem shifted more toward the narrative and living more in the mind's eye with the body more on the back, you know, in the back burner. And so another great poem, I won't read the whole thing or, or share it, but, um, but uh, Maria Mazziotti Gillen is a poet that does this. And I've seen her do it <laughs> for sure. I can confirm that that's how she writes. And uh, so I, I pulled up Shame is the Dress I Wear. And that's a, a story about her, her first dress. And um, so it starts out, Shame is the Dress I Wear. Uh, On the first day of school, my mother slips a dark blue dress over my head, ties the starch sash. Zia, Luisa, and Zio Jerumo 
have come down the back steps to our apartment to see me setting off. They don't have children of their own. And Zio Guillermo is my father. So they are a big part of our lives. And it goes on like that, just telling the story. But you feel that you can almost feel the prose in that. And it's intentionally more like prose because she wants you to sort of get lost in the story more than you do, you know, her being blown away by the clever sounds that her breath is making. And so there's a whole continuum there. And there's a way that there's sort of like a gas pedal almost too. You can sort of push it in more if you want more poetry and let it out more if you want more prose. And it's really important to keep that in mind as you're writing, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that speaks also to how important it is to read out loud. I think that that one thing that I hear the most when I have read a poem first and then I hear a poet read it is oftentimes what they're doing isn't lining up you know, and when they're reading necessarily with where their breaks are. And of course, that's, you know, a difference between, you know, and not saying anybody's necessarily right or wrong, but at the same time, um, it's really important to me that like when I put in the line breaks that they're understood to be as they are. So maybe even listening to somebody else reading your own poem could be something that could be helpful in that way too. Should we be lucky enough to have anybody else want to read one of our poems out loud, I guess, is part of it. But uh, Joe Barker, you had your hand up earlier too. I was wondering if you had something that you wanted to say in relation to what Tim was saying earlier. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of reinforcing, I think, something that Tim has said before, and I think you've said, Katie, is that it's just so important to understand sort of the rules, the guidelines, the expectations of writing poetry. And then if you're going to break them, you got to break them artfully and skillfully, and then it's then it's a next level. And if you break them in a poor or, or don't do it well, it's just sloppy poetry. So it's sort of a fine art. That is exceedingly well said, Joe Barker. I have to say, I couldn't agree more as we continue to tinker with this and look at this. And now, too, what's going to happen, now that we've talked about this for an hour, I know we're going to notice every single line break. We're going to be so honed in on it as we continue to read the poetry. So I think then, too, if people don't have closing thoughts, I'll go ahead and pull up the closing poem, which is going to take me a sec, Tim. So I'd love to hear. Oh, wait. Dick Westerman just shot his hand up. So let's hear from him. Um. So one of the nice things about doing this audio rather than video is you can't see me madly searching online for other examples. And I was wondering to what extent uh, psalms, which are sort of like one of the most ancient examples of written poetry we have used in jamment. And I think it was Tim, you know, talked about how um, often in jamment is used um, sparingly to sort of break a pattern like you get used to something and and sure enough um excuse me <coughs> in looking through psalms you'll find that you'll find these couplets that are perfectly matched and then all of a sudden in a jammed line and it does once you're conscious of it it does have that effect of sort of disquieting you for a moment and, you know, getting you slightly off balance and then you get back to the, you know, the regular rhythms of the and parallelism and, and all the other aspects that Psalms use to keep you entranced. Yeah, kind of like a reset button, you know, for, for getting stuck in a rut, which, yeah. uh, you know, it, it happens, especially, you know, reading that uh, you get stuck in that nursery rhyme feel you know, where you ex know exactly what's coming because the sounds are so similar and the, the length of line is so similar. It has a lot to do too with uh, varying line length in any kind of writing is so important to have, to keep the reader engaged, to have really short sentences, to have longer sentences and to not have the same sort of sentence length over and over and over again, because then you sort of lull the reader into a trance where they stop paying attention and it gets boring to that part of the brain that's looking for pattern and looking for patterns they need to, to adjust and update. And so it's a really important aspect of it. Hey, Katie, I think I'm going to, uh, we have three minutes. I think there's plenty of time to read two poems. I'm going to read this really short one too. Uh, well, you will you get one. This is a uh, Elizabeth Wolf pulled this out of rattle. I was trying to think of um, poems and rattle that use great line or great enjambment, and it's really hard to think of that. It's such a fine detail. Like I can remember a lot of what poems are saying and what they're about, and the feeling that they pull up or the form they use, but. But enjambment is too too small of a thing to to remember, apparently, because I was having trouble just thinking of, like, which poems used it really well. That's not something I log in my head, I guess. Or but too big Wolf... of a thing. <laughs> or too big of a thing to remember, because oh. maybe a poem can't be good without it. Maybe that's it. That's maybe great. that's it. Maybe they all have good enjambment. But Elizabeth Wolf pulled this one up. It is a short one. Um, it's Katie Luxem's Rumors. 
And this was uh, a Poets Respond poem from just last year or earlier this year, April 23rd, 2023. Um, it's about gun violence. Of course, you'll tell. But but if you look at this poem, uh, which you can find on Rattle pretty easily, Rumors by Katie, that's K-A-T-Y, a different spelling of Katie, and then Luxem, L-U-X-E-M. Um, you'll see that where the line breaks are, but every line is heavily enjammed, and every time it turns the meaning over. So I'll do a little extra pause normally than I normally would just so you can hear it. But uh, this is rumors. Someone gets mad. A boy brings a gun to school and plans to use it. Seventh period. At the end of the day, the bell sounds. My daughter runs the car, runs to the car like a shot, leaving books and questions in her locker. I tug her under the crooked cherry where blossoms flurry. It's so hard to believe the trees grow this way. A very short poem by Katie, but every time, you know, every time it leaves you hanging on a, on a sentence there, it's just that same, uh, that same word, which I'm never going to remember, uh, where it's subverting what you expect. It's sort of leaving you in an ambiguous place, and then you think you're going to fall off one way, and you fall off a different way. And the whole poem is, pulls you through that way, even though it's really short. So another good example. Oh, yes. You mean paraprosdokian, which is a word I say all the time. Paraprosdokian, I believe. Paraprosdokian. Oh, oh, now you know how to say it now that I try to say it. I see how it is. Oh, somebody's going to be like afterwards, you pronounced that incorrectly. And it's like, yes, I pronounced most things incorrectly. And yet I soldier ahead. So <laughs> that was a, a great poem, Finn. Thanks for sharing that. And then I guess I will go ahead and wrap up. So the poem I picked to close out is kind of funny, if you can see it pinned to the space, in that each of the beginning stanzas end, you know, with a complete period, a complete sentence. And then I really like, though, how that sets up at the end, at the second to last stanza, the penultimate stanza, that it sets up the fact that uh, it doesn't end. It continues on into the last stanza. And so it sets up ex expectations. And I think also this really highlights something uh, that makes Billy Collins' poetry so wonderful, which is his use of enjambment, and then also it being both subtle and surprising sort of at once, uh, which I think is something I personally can learn from because I tend to make very bold uses of enjambment and could do with a little more subtlety from time to time. So this is Billy Collins' Silence, and it is from The Trouble with Poetry, which is that lovely book that has the giant bear on the front, <laughs> which I love too. Silence. There is the sudden silence of the crowd, above a motionless player on the field and the silence of the orchid. The silence of the falling vase before it strikes the floor, the silence of the belt when it is not striking the child. The stillness of the cup and the water in it, the silence of the moon and the quiet of the day far from the roar of the sun. The silence when I hold you to my chest, the silence of the window above us and the silence when you rise and turn away. And there is the silence of this morning, which I have broken with my pen, a silence that I piled up all night, like snow falling in the darkness of the house, the silence before I wrote a word, and the poorer silence now. I think that uh, I really love that he chooses not to break it at points, such as the silence of the belt when it is not striking the child. I think that would have been kind of a gross use of enjambment to like look at it like, surprise, you know, this is happening, which is obviously a terrible thing. And so instead of going there, he continues with you and then allows for the expectation to be subverted in the end between the last two stanzas and for there to be a bigger silence because when you end something that strongly after a longer break with a period, uh, there's more silence after it, which is really powerful too. So I think there's a lot going on in this poem. So don't listen to any hater trying to discount Billy Collins because he's a great poet. So <laughs> thanks you guys so much for joining us in the poetry space today. I learned a lot about origins of words and a new word, paraprosdokian, <laughs> which we will all master soon. And I really want to thank you guys for joining us today. Joe Barger for reading us a great poem. Dick Westheimer for reading us Hamlet. Carla Schwartz for sharing a poem I hadn't read before, but with an excellent display of enjambment and line breaks in general. Uh, George Fasana for joining us up with his Shakespearean thoughts and Mark Donowski, of course, for teaching us all a new word. So thank you, of course, the most to Tim Green, my co-host. Thank you for everything today. Well, me not the most, you for hosting the space, Katie. And tell us uh, what you're going to do next week, because I'm going to be on a plane during next week's poetry space, but you're still doing something. You're going to be here. 
I am. I'm not going to be on a plane. So I'm going to be attempting to host my first open mic, which we've never done on the poetry space before, but I think will be fun. I don't know how I'm going to do it because I kind of like rules in my spaces somewhat. So I might ask people to send their poem beforehand, which would give me the opportunity to learn a little bit more about you as a poet too, which I always love doing. Uh, so I'm going to attempt that boldly with no co-host flying solo while you're flying solo, Tim. That will be the plan for next week. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure it'll be fun. I, I wish I could be there, but I'm, I'm sure you all have fun without me. Yeah, we'll try. As you'll, you'll have an extra packet of airline peanuts for us while we're doing the space. So. <laughs> we'll do. Uh, I'll write some poems <laughs> in the air, too. That sounds good. All right. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining us. And I hope you have a great week and that you'll come read one of your own poems for a change uh, next week on the Poetry Space. Yep. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>